Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Such great music, such great songs. The song of the redeemed, there's nothing like it. Second Thessalonians, if you are joining us today, we've been going through the Bible since last September, a book at a time, sometimes two books at a time, and picking one passage and looking at it as you're reading through the Bible. And this week, you're going to be reading Second Thessalonians. And folks, if you can't read three chapters in a week, you need to go back to school. It won't take you long to read these three chapters this week. Today, I'm going to focus out of chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. But let me give you a little bit of information. 2 Thessalonians was written not long, too long, after 1 Thessalonians to a group of believers where Paul didn't get to stay there very long on his missionary journey through there. He got run out of town after three weeks because of the people that didn't like what he was preaching. And so in the first letter, he mentions the second coming often, the second coming of Jesus often. Well, evidently, between the first letter to the Thessalonians and the second letter, there must have been some kind of fake letter allegedly signed by Paul or forged for him that claimed that Christ had already come. And that that persecution that they were living in was the tribulation period after the Christians were taken away. Well, Paul shows them, especially in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he, he, he mentions that the rapture hadn't occurred. It, it, you're not in the tribulation. Jesus has not returned. The persecution is getting worse. And people are getting discouraged. And so he writes this letter to confirm to these young believers, the fundamentals of the faith, the Christian faith. He also uh, writes it to condition the believers to go on even in the midst of difficulty. When life gets hard, you don't quit. You keep on living for Christ. And it's also to comfort them in the fact that the return of Jesus had not yet come and that he still is planning to come. Some of the people had quit their jobs thinking that the, 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 the return of Jesus was so close, they just quit their jobs and were waiting for Jesus to return. Paul said, don't do that. Even though the return of Jesus is imminent, it may not be immediate. And you and I are looking for the return of Jesus, but we're to keep on living until he comes, right? Keep on serving, keep on doing what he's called us to do until he returns. So with that in mind, I've, I've labeled the whole letter of 2 Thessalonians to be unshakable, to stay in there, to be grounded, to be stable. Today, let's talk about how you can do that. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Now, I will tell you, up until verse 13, he's described the, the, the Antichrist. He's described the lawlessness that's going to happen toward the end of time. He's talking about how the world's going to get worse and worse. The lawless one will be revealed. 
and unrighteousness is going to rule, and we're beginning to see that. People are being uh, deceived. There's a strong delusion. But you'll notice the very first word in verse 13, but... But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast, Hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our, God, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work, word and work. We just recently finished that Second Thessalonians this earlier this year, and so those of you who came on Wednesday night are going to recognize this true story or true account. Back in 1987 in September, a man by the name of Henry Dempsey was at the controls of an Eastern Express commuter airline flight. Now he and the co-pilot were relocating a Beach 99 turboprop plane from Portland, Maine to Boston. And since they were relocating this aircraft, there were no passengers aboard. As soon as they began to take off and they were climbing out of their takeoff, the pilot, which was Henry Dempsey, heard a banging noise in the back of the aircraft. So he gave the controls to the co-pilot and he got up out of his seat to go back to see what was making the noise. And when he got back there, he noticed that the pull-up door was not latched securely. And about the time that he reached down to latch that door, the plane hit turbulence, the door opened, and Dempsey was sucked out of the plane. Well, the terrified co-pilot looked back and saw that the door was open, the pilot was gone. He immediately got on the radio and declared an emergency and requested a helicopter to search for Dempsey's body. But when the door flew open, Dempsey grabbed both sides and was hanging on for dear life. 200 mile an hour winds were hitting him, and the co-pilot landed at the nearest airport not knowing that Dempsey was still out there. He successfully landed the plane, and Dempsey's head avoided the surface of the runway less than 12 inches. The emergency crews were astonished to see Dempsey hanging upside down, holding on to that door, and it took them several minutes to pry his fingers away from the door. One, rescue said it, one rescuer said it took a grip of steel and nerves of iron to hang on with all the turbulence, but Dempsey refused to let go, and it saved his life. I'm pretty sure his hair was messed up, too. <laughs> now, you and I are not hanging on to an airplane. I, I'm pretty sure they would have to pry my fingers off of it too. You can only imagine. You and I are not hanging on to an airplane, 
But we are in the middle of a cultural storm that's getting more and more turbulent. And a lot of believers get discouraged and they think, is it, can, is it worth it to serve the Lord? Is it worth it to stay with it? And you're bombarded with false teaching and, and all kinds of ridicule and in some cases persecution. And, and Paul is saying, no matter what happens to you, no matter how difficult it gets, you need to stay in there. You need to stand firm. In fact, he tells the believers to stand firm and to... Hold on to the word of God. And if there was ever a call for us to remain unshakable, to stand firm, to stay with it, it's, to, it's what we need now. In one episode of Peanuts, Lucy and Linus are staring out the window at the pouring down rain. And Lucy says, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? And Linus, her little brother, says, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that it would never happen again and the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And Lucy smiles and says, you've taken a great load off my mind. And Linus says, sound theology has a way of doing that. I want you to know that sound theology, if you understand what God's word has to say, you can stay in there no matter how difficult it becomes. How stable are you in your Christian life? Now, stability is an important part of our life. We're always hearing that word. Some people, I mean, our government talks about stabilizing the economy. Builders endeavor to construct stable homes, and carpenters want to build stable furniture, aircraft, and uh, ships have stabilizers to help with the turbulent waves or the wind. And we admire people who seem to have a stable personality and a stable character and convictions. But the New Testament tells us that we're supposed to have stability as a child of God. That in, no matter how bad this world gets, you know who you are and you know what you're standing on. In fact, Paul wrote in the first Thessalonian letter, chapter three, verse eight, he said, now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. And in chapter two, verse 22, he talks about not soon being shaken in mind or troubled by spirit. And here in verse 15, he says, therefore stand fast and hold to the traditions which you were taught. So folks, I wanna to talk to you a moment about standing fast, to remain unshakable. If we're going to remain unshakable, I'm not going to be moved off my faith. I'm not going to be moved out of serving the Lord. You first must stand on the unchanging faith. There's some certainty in your life, and I want to share some of that. Now, I want to illustrate something here. I'm going to ask Doug Fish. Doug, come up here just a minute. I want to illustrate something to you. I want to talk to you about standing firm. Now, Doug, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to push me. <laughs> in a moment, I'm going to ask you to push me. No, he did exactly. Now, if I know you're about to push me, now push me again. I'm, I'm ready for it. But... See, as I was standing there unprepared, actually I was because I knew he was going to do it. Thank you, Doug. You can sit down. 
See, you don't always know when something's going to push you or attack you or hurt you or shock you. You're not always ready, but, but there are some things that you can stand on. Now, when I was ready for him, I can plant my feet. I'm ready for him. He's, he can probably still push me, but he's not going to knock me over like he did when I wasn't prepared. So if you're going to stand firm, you've got to be on some solid ground. And right here in these two verses, verses 13 and 14, there, there, I see six truths that you can stand on. You need to plant these deep in your life. You need to realize it. In fact, those two verses really are the theme, or verse 15 is really the theme of 2 Thessalonians. So what are these six truths? First, you are cherished by God. You are loved by God. He calls them beloved of the Lord. Regardless of how you're being treated in the world, regardless of if you feel like nobody cares about you, I want you to never forget that you are loved by God. And nothing you can do can make him love you more than he already loves you. The love that we have is conditional. I will love you if you love me, or I will love you if you do this for me, or I'll love you as long as you obey me, or whatever. We've got some conditions on our love. But God loves you, and it's not determined on your qualities. It's not determined on your characteristics. It's determined by God's qualities and characteristics. God is Love. We learn that as preschoolers. Sometimes we feel like God quits loving us. God never quits loving you. Amen? He never quits loving you. And God doesn't love you and me because we're especially lovable. He loves you and me because he is loving. Now, I don't know who wrote this little ditty, but it goes like this. Isn't it odd that a being like God who sees the facade still loves the clod he made out of sod? Isn't that odd? (laughs) Isn't it amazing that God loves you and me? He doesn't love you anymore because you came to church this morning. Now, he wants you to be here. But see, some of you may have come thinking, well, if I go today, it'll make God love me more. I want you to get it in your thick head and my thick head that God cherishes you and me. That we're his child. He never lets go of us. God said to the prophet Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued to extend faithful love to you. I've loved you with an everlasting love, he told his children. He told the Israelites. We've been grafted in. He loves us with everlasting love. When you study other religions... Sometimes some of the people who follow other religions will say, well, we just serve the same God. We just call him by a different name. When you study the Quran and you compare it to the Bible, you cannot claim that the God of the Bible 
and the God of Islam is the same. Because in the Quran, the love and approval of Allah is based upon human performance. If a person is faithful to follow the five pillars of Islam, then perhaps, maybe, there's no sense of assurance, maybe Allah will choose you to enter paradise at death or allow you. But Allah hates the infidel and commands Muslims to oppose them. That's not the God we serve. Not the one true God. It's the God who loved us and came seeking us. The second truth I want you to stand on, not me, but Paul mentions here that you can stand on, is that you were chosen by God. The Greek word hilato is in the aorist middle tense, which means to, it, it, to, it take, to take one for oneself. God chose you for himself, and he did the action. He chose you. I can't imagine that in the Thessalonians didn't feel like they were, I can't, I can't imagine that the Thessalonians didn't feel like they were chosen for salvation, especially when they were going through such difficult times, through persecution. People often fail to realize that the salvation that God speaks of that we were chosen to doesn't save us from all the circumstances of life. Just because you've been saved doesn't mean that you're going to have an easy road the rest of your life. He just said, I'm not ever going to leave you. I will always be there with you. I will give you the strength to go through whatever it is you're going through. But you were chosen by God. And this is a truth that sometimes we forget. Did you ever play sandlot football or baseball or sports? Okay, do y'all remember the days? Maybe you don't, but I remember the days when we were going to have a, a front yard football game. And so usually the two best players or the two oldest players or the biggest players were the captains. Remember that? And then they would step back and everybody else lines up and they start picking people for their team. Now down in your heart, you're hoping you're not picked last. Because then the second best players usually were picked first. And so one would pick one and one, and then they would amble over there behind the captain, kind of like, yeah, I got chosen first. And then they started down the line. And depending on your size and your ability and your age, a lot of times you were hoping, oh, I hope I'm not last. And then did you ever have them say, maybe you're standing there, and they say, "Oh, oh, you can have him. Y'all remember those days? Those were glorious days, weren't they? They helped your self-esteem. Oh, oh, here, you can have them. Here, we'll give you both of them. But folks, I want to tell you something. God didn't pick you that way. God chose you first. In fact, he chose you before you were born He chose you before Jesus even came to die for you. Ephesians 1, 4 says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will. Now listen to me. God chose you 
But you also have a say in whether or not you'll be on his team. You see, the issue of your will is still involved. It's one of those situations where it's a divine situation. You can't completely understand it. But I don't know that when a person is saved, there are three factors involved. You have the word of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the will of the person. Because God didn't make us robots. God didn't make us love him. So somehow God reconciles all of that. But I want you to know that God wanted you. He chose you. Chose you first before the foundation of the world. The devil didn't say, here, you can just have him. She's not worth having. No. God thought you were worth it. He chose you. Amen? Amen. The third truth, we're consecrated, sanctified by the Spirit. It says this in verse 13. We're bound to give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. He loves you because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. Our transformation, when we come to Christ, we repent of our sins, we acknowledge that we're sinners, we ask God to forgive us, we come to Christ and he saves us. God's Spirit is put in us. You are saved right then. But you're also, your transformation is a continual process. He set you apart. He's changing your life. He, Paul wrote in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's still working on you. He's still chipping off the rough edges. He's still taking away the sin and the dross. He, he saved you eternally, but now he's conforming you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. You're still a work in progress. Don't get discouraged. You think, man, I, I'm not anywhere near like Jesus. Well, neither are, are any of us, but he's still working on us. The simplest definition of true sanctification means to be set apart as holy to God. We are his workmanship. We are created for good. We are, we are saved and created unto good works. Saved unto good works is what I'm trying to say. And, and, and he's still growing us. There's a fourth truth. There's a conviction of the truth. Now look what he says in verse 13. He chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. The truth. Paul reminds them that their belief in the truth is not following some superstition or some popular opinion or some trend for the day. There's all kinds of weird stuff that's made up all the time. But you'll know the truth. They were trusting in the truth. The truth, folks, truth is truth no matter how unpopular it gets. A lot of times people who hate the truth look at truth as hate. But truth does not change. We trust in Jesus. Why? 
Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. When sinners believe God's truth, God saves them. But when they believe Satan's lie and reject the truth, they cannot be saved. Just go back up to verse 10 and you can look at it for yourself. When you don't believe in God's truth, being neutral about God's truth is a dangerous thing. You don't come and say, well, I don't believe that. Just because you don't believe something doesn't mean it's not true. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father by by me. You and I believe that truth. And that truth does not change. And so we have the conviction of God's word. It is true. And people discredit the Bible. They try to attack it. They try to water it down. They try to, to get it out of the way so that they can live like they want. But whether you like it or not, we live on the conviction of God's word. It does not change. No matter what the Supreme Court says, no matter what Congress does, it does not change. There's a fifth thing. You are called by God. He called you, it says in verse 14, to which he called you by our gospel. Now, obviously, the word our gospel refers to the message that was given to Paul about Jesus Christ being the only way. He speaks of the actual work of bringing them to himself. God calls you to himself. He's not only chosen you, but he's called you. You hear me say on any given Sunday, that urgency that you feel, that tug at your heart, that is the call of salvation. You just know the Holy Spirit's leading you. Amen. Do you remember that time when you got saved? You remember that feeling you had? And this is written in Aris Tench, which said, Paul said, when I came to you the first time, God called you right then through the gospel and you responded to the gospel. Can you go back to that time when you gave your life to Jesus? You may not remember all the details, but I do know this. I can't remember everything that happened because it's been so long ago, but I do know this. I knew I was lost and I knew that my heart was about to pound out of my chest. I thought, God is calling me to give my life to him. And I responded, And I've never been the same. I'm not perfect. But I can see God's progress in my life through the years. He called you personally. At a point in time, at some point in your life, you responded to him. Isn't it amazing that the God of the universe called you? Isn't that amazing? He he knows your name. He knows everything about you. We're also, the last truth in those two verses is that we're confident of victory. He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to share in the triumph of Jesus. We're going to be with him forever. You can fall into the trap that looks out in the unbelieving world and and sees how the world seems to be winning. Have you ever noticed? You ever notice that people that it, it appears, and I'm speaking in generalities, but a lot of these people that don't even acknowledge God, they got all the money. 
And it seems like they can have everything the world has to offer. They've got the fame, they've got the looks, they've got the, the money, they've got everything the world has to offer. And they don't ever have to seem any pro, they don't ever seem to have any problems. Now that's just what you think. Did you know you find that attitude in the Bible? Asaph in Psalm 73 said, I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Behold, these are ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. These folks that have everything the world has to offer, this is as good as it will ever be for them in eternity unless they come to Jesus. For the believer, listen to this, for the believer, what always begins with grace leads to glory. You see, it's quite a contrast to the future. When you, when you read, when you read through 1 and 2 Thessalonians, you're going to see that believers' end is going to be destruction. They're going to be living apart from God for eternity. But for the believer, we're just not home yet. You may be going through a difficult time. You're just not home yet. You just haven't experienced it yet. But did you know this? Listen, did you know you already have God's glory in you. Now, don't misunderstand me. You're not God, but you have the glory of salvation in you because when Jesus Christ comes back, it says it's going to be revealed in us. In John 17, Jesus even mentioned that his glory has, has been given to us. God's glory through Jesus Christ lives in us. We're the trophies of God. We're the trophies of his grace. Paul's reminding us that we are bound for the glory of the Lord. We're going home one day. We're going to be through in eternity with Jesus. I hope you get more excited before that day happens. <laughs> I mean, think about it. This place right here is full of what God can do. Look at us. We were poor, hell-bound sinners, and God is transforming us to make us be more like him. I mean, there's, it's a miracle when you look at all of us in this room of where we are now and where we used to be. Now, folks, I want to tell you, you can stand on those six things right there no matter how difficult life gets. And you're going to be shaken from time to time. But you stand firm on that. We're confident of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. But now let's get to verse 15. You see, here it says we're to strive or to live our life with an unwavering focus. What is my conduct going to look like? Here's the theme verse of 2 Thessalonians. Now, notice the two verbs, stand fast, 
uphold the traditions. Both of them are present tense verbs, which means the continuous action. It goes on and on and on, and it's actually not a suggestion. They are imperatives. They are commands. Do this. Stay in there. Continually stay in there. Continually hold to the truth. Let's look at them quickly. First of all, to stand firm. I've already mentioned it. It means to stand, but it's used figuratively in the sense of standing in place. It calls for believers to become spiritually stable because there are lots of winds of adversity, false doctrine, persecution, temptation. So many believers are always jumpy and jittery and worried and, and uncertain. But if you, and I'm going to tell you, if you watch too much television, you're going to be jittery. These aren't wonderful times that we're living in. But in times like these, we've got to stand on the truth. God's still on the throne. God's still in control. God still knows who I am. God still loves me. I'm still his child. You can't do anything to me. You can't kill me. Did you know you can't kill me? Now, you can kill this body I live in, but you can't kill me. Because I've got eternal life. I'm going home one day. He wrote in Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And then he mentions the uh, armor, the spiritual armor. And three times in that spiritual armor, he says, stand. Having done all, stand. Stand firm then. You ever heard that expression, don't just stand there, do something? Let's turn that around. Don't just do something. Stand there. Stand in the faith. Stand in Jesus Christ. Someone said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Our culture keeps redefining morality. It keeps redefining truth. But you stand on the truth of God's word. Sin is still sin regardless of who votes it out, regardless of what they label it. According to God's word, sin is still sin. Stand firm. The second verb means to stay the course, to hold on, which means to be strong and mighty, to prevail. It, it came to mean to hold on something strongly or tightly so that you cannot lose it or it be taken away. And he mentions the traditions. Now, the New King Germs, Germs, the New King James, I got to get that right. The New King James Version says that to stand on the truth, but it may say traditions in your translation of Scripture. It doesn't mean our cultural traditions. I mean, you've got traditions. You folks sit in the same seat just about every week. You got a tradition going. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the truth, the gospel, the word of God that's been handed down. It does not change. The word traditions means a handing down, but a handing down of the truth. I like what H.A. Ironside used to say, what is new is not true, and what is true is not new. In other words... It's the old truth that is still true. Now, you may read the Bible, and God may open your eyes to some new insight, but you're going to find out you're not the first one to find that out because somebody else knew it a long time ago. The old truth is still true. 
Methods change. We do things differently. We, we meet at different times. And, and a lot of methods in a church change, but the truth is still true. Hold to the truth. Are we becoming obsolete? The culture says we are. The culture says that what you believe, that's old school. In fact, you know what? I had somebody tell me, well, David, you're still one of the old school preachers. And I couldn't figure that out. I thought, well, I know it's been a long time since I've been to school. (laughs) But what they're saying is, you still hold to the truth. You know what? Put me in ancient school if that's the case. Because these ancient words are still true. They're not somebody's opinion. So when the ground seems unsteady under your feet, you need to remember what you've learned. Tell yourself the truth. Those six things I mentioned to you. God loves you. God chose you. And so forth. But, but there's, some, there's still some more good stuff. And I know what time it is, but I'll get finished. It says that we're still sheltered by our unfailing Father. We're still covered. Look at verse 16. Three things, real, four things real quick. First of all, we see that God has loved us. That's the past. God's loved us in the past. But he also loves us in the present. The word consolation Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us, that's past, and has given us everlasting consolation, that's present. The word everlasting comfort or consolation means a, it's the same word used for for the Holy Spirit, paraclete, paraclesis. The comfort is not only for the future, but something we have now. And we have eternal comfort. God has living in us, we have eternal comfort the rest of our life. Now when I say comfort, that doesn't mean easy street. I'm talking about during the times of tribulation, you've got something to help stabilize you, to hold you in there. Romans 15, 4 says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through patience and perseverance and comfort of the scripture might have hope. And the third thing is the future or the prospect, the hope that we have. You look what he says in verse 13. Excuse me, verse 16, who has loved us and given us everlasting comfort and consolation and good hope by grace. The word hope, when you hear the word hope, we use it different ways. Some of you are hoping the Dallas Cowboys will win a game this year. (laughs) Some of you are hoping that Texas Tech's going to have a good football team and a good game too. Hope, but the Bible, the word hope means certainty. It's what keeps you going. It's not that it might happen. It's the certainty that's going to happen that gives you hope. Someone put it this way, an acrostic for hope is having only positive expectations. Hope is the anchor. It's what keeps us going. Now, I'm about to tell you something I don't want you to miss. I want to read to you Hebrews 6, 18. 
we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope, listen to this, we have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. I've told you before that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in front of the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was, was rent from top to bottom. Jesus has gone behind that for us and his blood was shed for our sins, sprinkled on the mercy seat. Spiritually speaking, he covered our sin. Now, he's our anchor. Now, now get this. When, you, when I say the word anchor, you're thinking immediately of if you have a boat, you've got something on a piece of string that, or a piece of rope that goes and sticks on the bottom and holds your boat there, or you think of a, a ship's anchor. And that really doesn't fit this. In biblical times, they didn't have all the navigation equipment that we have now. And a lot of times an anchor was a rock or a big piece of rock that had a hole in it and they would tie, put a rope through the rock and tie it on there and they would use it as an anchor. But when they came into some ports, when they came close to land and they were going to come into a seaport town, many times there were rocks and other things that the captain could not see because he had no navigation equipment. And so they would take the anchor and put it in a smaller vessel. And they would row that vessel into shore and put that anchor down. And then with the pulleys on the ship, they would pull that ship into the harbor so that it wouldn't strike anything around it. Now that picture is that Jesus Christ went into the Holy of Holies he paid the price for us. And the, and the way that we have presence into God is because he's our anchor and he's going to pull us into his presence. Now, that's good stuff. You know it? The Bible's just full of good stuff. During the early days of World War II, our nation was reeling from the surprise attack of Pearl Harbor it was a tough and scary time when people had to ration food and had to ration other things. They even made pennies out of steel one year because they needed the copper for bullets. During that time, a pastor's wife from Pennsylvania, her name was Ruth K. Jones, wrote a beloved hymn that speaks to our need for stability in an unstable world. The lyrics go like this. In times like these, you need a savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure. Be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. The chorus says, this rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure. Be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. Finally, we see God's provision in verse 17. He comforts our hearts 
and establishes you in every good word and work. Isn't it interesting that he says it will show God will strengthen you in how you talk and in how you walk. Here's the two words. Talk, walk your talk, talk your walk. That God strengthens us, gives us comfort, and he encourages them as a father does a child. In fact, back in verse 11, he mentions that he wanted to encourage them in 1 Thessalonians 2.11, not 2 Thessalonians. Folks, listen. I know life is hard, and some days are harder than others. But God never leaves us. You're not ever going to come to a place where you're not his child. Stand. Be unshakable. You can't do this without Jesus. Religion won't do this for you. Religion's as fickle as the the people. It, It just doesn't have any stability to it. But you and I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, I pray for those today who need Jesus as their Savior. That right now you'll show them the emptiness that's there without Jesus, that they would turn from their sin, coming to you for forgiveness and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you for those that you keep sending to our church. Thank you for those who are even going to be baptized today because of their faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you'll bring people to you right now. There are pastors at the front to pray with you. The Holy Spirit may be leading you. He may be telling you this is something you need to do. There may be some sin in your life that needs to be confessed. Make it right. Get right with God. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information to make a commitment or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.